Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. Today's episode is a recording of a conversation between author Don Watson and academic, journalist and author Margaret Simons about Margaret's new quarterly essay, Crimea River, The Tragedy of the Murray-Darling Basin. A warning, as this is a live internet recording, there has been an impact on the sound quality of the episode. Here's Don. When the COVID virus is over and we can go back to a post-truth, evidence-free politics and dismiss science, when the culture wars can resume and words can become cheap again and the scorpions come out, there will still be the Murray-Darling Basin to deal with. And uh, Margaret Simons has written a quarterly essay called Crimea River, The Tragedy of the Murray-Darling Basin. And it's a splendid essay, but it is it is immensely complex, both as a as a history and as a an attempt to deal with the possibilities that remain. Um, the Murray Darling Basin was a was a problem. It has been a kind of unresolved problem since Federation twenty five years ago, when the Keating government was trying to deal with it. It was simply, it, 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 the problem just seemed too big. Um, since then, of course, it's only got bigger. Um, how we resolve these difficulties, no one seems to know. About a hundred years ago, almost exactly, actually, that old Australian nationalist E.J. Brady said, if there's ever a civil war in Australia, it will be over water. Essay, you feel that it's not that far from civil war, although there's been no shooting yet, even from the shooters and fishers. But there is um, a sense of, uh, from the outside, perhaps of chaos, from the inside, that it, it perhaps feels less like chaos than, uh, than a sort of range war. And a bit of culture war sort of bled into it as well. Anyway, if we can begin with something positive, the people who perhaps have most to do with the matter, or try and take a sort of Olympian position because their jobs require them to, are the chief executives of the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, Phil Glyde, and the Commonwealth water holder, Jody Swerpik. And they take, because they have no choice but to take, I suspect, a positive view. And I wonder, Margaret, if you could begin by just quoting from page 98 of your essay what Jodie Swerapik says. Or maybe it would be simpler if I did it, and then I'll shut up. She says, We have water allocated to the environment. We are already seeing the changes this can make. We have made a massive step change in Australia through substantial financial investment in the health of our rivers. I can't really see a circumstance where this commitment would be reversed. We are doing a remarkable thing, this is the important part, to try and make the basin sustainable, and we don't celebrate this enough. The rest of the world looks to us to learn how the needs across industry sectors, the environment and critical human needs can be balanced. We have to keep working at this. Elsewhere, Phil Glyde, the um, chief executive, says it'll never be 100%, but... It, we're, it's like a, a vehicle that's not perfect yet, but we're working on it as we go. 
Now, these two statements, to me, reading the essay, stick out rather like the proverbial, because everything else um, seems to be contested and at times irresolvable interests competing that, that simply cannot be resolved, even before you get personalities involved. Uh, Margaret, how do you feel about this? Um, are you, um, do you feel hopeful that something can be done to resolve this hideous problem or well, we'll just struggle on? Well, I agree with you that it's complex, Don. It would be lovely to be able to answer that question in a simple way. But as if you indicated, it's not a it's not a simple issue. So I kind of ricocheted between despair and qualified hope. Um, I think what Jodie Surapik and Phil Glide say amounts to we're better off with the Murray Darling Basin Plan and with the Murray Darling Basin Authority than we would be without it, and that's probably true. And to take the glass half full approach for a little while given all the irreconcilable interests and the warring states and they've been warring you know since before we were a federation and they've never really stopped warring over water um, it is a miracle that we've got the Murray-Darling Basin Agreement and plan uh, it's astonishing really um, and as I say we're probably better off with it than without but whether or not it's working is certainly contested um, and the extent to which it's working. First of all, there are information gaps. We really don't know a, a great deal about where the water is and how it's being used. Uh, there are certainly compliance issues, and it's not really clear how serious they are, whether they, um, whether they um, undermine the whole thing or, um, or just around the edges. Um, and there's also, right from the start really, been a tendency to not do what the science suggests is required because of the political difficulties. So the Murray-Darling Basin Plan is a political compact, kind of has to be, between all the basin governments and the federal government. But at every stage there have been huge political compromises made on what the science suggests is needed. So even though recovering water for the environment has caused endless uh, pain and problems, we're almost certainly not recovering enough. And that will become apparent and there will be more pain ahead. And the political compact, meanwhile, is constantly threatening to fall apart. And is it threatening to sort of poison the politics of of the region, in fact, politics nationally, really. I mean, some of your descriptions of electorates like Farrah or Murray uh, are really quite um, chilling in a way, and it's hard to see how they'll ever go back to normal. Yeah, well, it's certainly upending politics as normal. So we're talking, by and large, regions which are usually voting Conservative or, or National Party, National Party perhaps more than Conservative, because there's a difference between those things, yeah. Um, New South Wales, of course, is the state that covers most of the basin and the key electorates which cover, you know, great swathes of the Murray-Darling Basin have, at state level, have in recent uh, times been lost by the National Party um, and are now held by the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party. And the politics behind that, it varies a bit from region to region, but it's really because the National Party is perceived as having looked after the interests of its mates in northern New South Wales and Queensland, largely cotton farming, 
farming at the expense of all the other irrigators in the southern areas of the basin. And, and, bro- and broadly speaking, speaking, do you think, I mean, we might as well come straight to the crunch, is it, it, broadly speaking, do you think that's true, that's a fair assessment of, we can get to the detail later, but is it true that it's really the cotton farms who are the problem? Um, the cotton farmers are a problem, but they're not the only problem, and I think there's a tendency to demonise uh, particular crops in a way that isn't entirely helpful. Um, the cotton farming industry has certainly been incredibly politically influential, and in the Queensland context, it's been cut a lot of slack and had a lot of special deals, largely courtesy of national party governments in Queensland. Um, But you would look at any crop anywhere along the river and you would be able to say that people, farmers, have done what they've been allowed to do by politicians and by governments. Um, And everybody has done the most that they have been allowed to do. And everybody has lobbied hard. Everybody has taken advantage of failures of governance. Now, that's certainly true of the cotton industry, but it's true also of almond growers near the South Australian border, both sides of the South Australian border, Um, It's been true in the past of the rice industry. Um, And I say that I think the real failures are failures of governments and that uh, just sort of hate on particular crops uh, obscures that. Plus which, of course, cotton, you know, Australian cotton farmers are very good at what they do. They're more efficient in their use of water than um, other cotton growers in other countries of the world. And cotton is highly profitable. So if you're talking about what is the best dollar use of water, how do we get most um, bang for bang for milliliter, if you like, um, you know, cotton is one of the answers to that. So um, do we really want to say, well, as some people do, we shouldn't grow cotton in this country um, when that is arguably a very efficient use of water? Right. Do you, is that in the end, though, when you say that it, it's farmers, whatever they're growing, use as much water as they can possibly get because they need it. Does that not go to the whole, you know, the nub of the problem in a way, that there simply isn't enough water or there's not enough reliable water because that's the nature of this country? Mm-hmm. Um, mm. and, and so, and, I mean, you look at the Darling, I've only ever seen the Darling a couple of times, it was like a drain and the thought that, you know, that, it, that it, it's a funny thing about floods, you never think there can be one until you see one. Mm-hmm. Well, that would be a, a reasonably extreme position. But, yeah, I mean, absolutely, there is not enough water. And if you, um, you know, if you had your choice, you wouldn't be starting from here in trying to manage the river system. It has been over-allocated everywhere. Um, that's a, a long-standing historical problem along the Murray River itself, um, rivers like the Murrumbidgee. Um, the Loddon, the Compassby in Victoria, you know, historically they have been drastically over-allocated. The Queensland Northern New South Wales story is a more recent story. The cotton industry was sort of late off, out of the blocks and, and uh, Queensland in particular was late to the irrigation business, but they took off um, like a runaway train from, you know, about the 1970s onwards. Um, and now 
uh, are huge users of water and the northern basin is one of the areas where we really don't know how much water is being used and where it is. It's the northern basin that most of the compliance issues and the allegations of water theft and so on have come up. And that's partly because those are sort of boom and bust rivers. They're fed by uh, tropical rivers and semi-tropical rivers and you're either in flood or in drought. Um, and we don't have the sort of big publicly owned dams like the Dartmouth and the Hume that you have along the Murray, which make it possible to know, for the most part anyway, where the water is and where it's going. You just can't do that in the Northern Basin. It's a huge unknown. Yeah, and, and below that, I mean, that's the thing about the middle, Darling, I suppose, is that it's, it's largely marginal country. It's certainly west of the Darling. Is. In fact, I've heard people say, perfectly sensible people in other respects at least, that really we shouldn't, you know, the west of the Darling might as well be left alone. Yes. Because mm. it's a sort of a trap. Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, and, you know, my... And my home state of South Australia as well, people say that. I mean, the Murray there runs for the most part through semi-desert country, you know, marginal wheat country. You might get one crop in five, perhaps, one good crop in five. Um, and yet along the river, you've got these little oases, which, of course, to our forebears seemed like a miracle. I mean, it was the white man's dreaming to create gardens in the desert. Um, and, you know, very, very powerful myth. And, of course, a source of enormous productivity. But really, the, the river was over-allocated from very early days in the Federation and only really uh, from late in the last century have we been making attempts to, to peg that back, which is very hard because you have towns and livelihoods and large sections of our economy which depend on irrigation. Yeah, well, maybe we can go back for the purposes of people who perhaps don't quite get the dimensions of the Murray-Darling Basin. You, you provide in this essay a wonderful description of it. Could you just, perhaps, it's a small task, Margaret, <laughs> to, um, to just give us an idea of, of, its, of its dimensions and its significance, both economically and, and in other ways? Sure. Well, look, I can give you some figures, but, of course, people have trouble... Uh, comprehending what the figures mean. So they can press rewind. <laughs> the Murray Darling Basin, it's more than a million square kilometres, and I'm going to say that slowly so people can get their, their head around that. It's a huge area. Um, so um, the mouth of the Murray, which is really the end of the whole system or the beginning of the whole system, depending on how you look at it, um, is in South Australia. Uh, where the river exits into two enormous lakes, Lake Alexandrina and Lake Albert, and that's also the beginning of the Coorong, that long saltwater lagoon that many Australians will remember from the um, Storm Boy movie. Um, and then uh, it splits into two branches. So you've got the southern branch, which is the Murray River itself, and that is fed by the Murrumbidgee, um, and in, in that includes uh, rivers like the Lachlan in New South Wales. Um, all these names, of course, very resonant of uh, West, of both um, Indigenous and uh, white man history. Yes, and, and the diverted Snowy, of course. Yes, and the diverted Snowy, which is a, a really important contributor. And then in Victoria, I mentioned earlier, you've got the Compassby, the Loddon, um, other rivers of that sort. And then the other branch, the northern branch, is the Darling, 
um, and that um, is fed by the Macquarie River, which starts uh, west of Sydney in the Great Dividing Range and then sort of loops its way through the Macquarie Marshes and right up to join the Darling River. And then if we go sort of north of Burke or north and east of Burke, the Darling splits into many branches. So you've got the Warrego River, uh, the Kalgoa, um, many, many rivers. It's sort of just, you know, braided floodplains of tropical rivers. So a huge system. So you, it, you know, the northernmost extent is north of Charlieville and the southernmost parts of it are um, in South Australia and around the Grampians in Victoria. Um, spreads east to the Great Dividing Range and west to Broken Hill. So huge. And more than 77,000 kilometres of rivers, including Australia's four longest rivers, 9,200 irrigated agriculture businesses, um, $8 billion in tourism, and many wetlands, including 16, which are internationally recognised. Um, it's just huge. I mean, what more can I say? It's enormous. Uh, and, 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 and of course, culturally, it's sort of, you know, it's almost the birthplace, if you like, of the mythical Australian, you know, white Australian character. You know, it's where Charles Bean went out in the early years of the 20th century and said, this is the real Australian. That's right. That's right. And most, you know, Henry Lawson um, worked as a rouseabout in the Murray-Darling Basin on the Darling River. Um, I know that the recent reimaginings of the drover's wife have put her into the snowies, but um, but, she was, <laughs> but she was almost certainly um, originally near the Tarala station, Tarala station um, west of Burke, literally back of Burke, um, and uh, you know Clancy of the Overflow that was on the Lachlan River in the yeah. Murray Darling Basin. So yes, it's the heart of our mythology, generally referred to as the food. Uh, the food bowl of the nation. Um, in fact, it's probably food and fibre these days because of the importance of cotton and also fodder for cattle. But yes, without the Murray-Darling Basin, most of the food we grow in Australia wouldn't be there. We're all connected to it, really. If you if you eat meat, if you drink milk, if you drink almond milk, um, if you wear, if you wear cotton, you're probably connected to the Murray-Darling Basin. So the yeah, idea. And, and, and big, uh, big Italian populations, it's sort of not simply, you know, not everyone's clancy of the overflow out there these days and hasn't been for a long while. That's right. Well, Griffith, which um, is really a creation largely of the Murray Darling, of the um, Snowy River scheme, um, it, you know, has traditionally very deep rooted Italian communities, and that's still very visible when you go there. And, you know, a hugely, particularly, I was driving around the Murray Darling Basin in the middle of drought and you spend days driving over these you know, awfully drought-ridden plains and then you drive into Griffith and even now, when water is short all round, it is literally a garden in the desert. You have grapevines and fruit trees and it lifts your heart, you know. Enough, I'm a white fella, gardens in the desert, it really does get to you. Yeah, absolutely. We should add, on the other side of that, of course, it's, it's the, the land was after all taken and once you become aware of this um a drive through it takes on another sort of dimension when you it, it is where the mile creek massacre occurred it's where uh, where the aboriginal clans were brutally dispossessed mm, yes and they're still there as it becomes plain from your essay um and 
very significant contesting role in the arguments over the Darling. Yes, absolutely. Now that all the Indigenous nations, there's, there's more than 40 um, Indigenous nations um, in the Murray-Darling Basin, and yes, most of them are still very much there and very much um, players in this, but the process by which the plan has been introduced has been dogged by poor consultation for everyone, I think. It's a fair statement, but that is particularly intensely so for Aboriginal nations. And I think one of the worst cases uh, is the Barkanji on the Darling River, on the Lower Darling, who actually won Australia's largest native title claim before the plan came into operation. And that included the river, included the water of the river and what that means for their cultural practices. And when I was there, and, and very often since the turn of the century, the water simply hasn't been there. The Darling has been dry. And um, we can talk some more about why that is, but uh, it just makes a joke out of native title, really. I mean, uh, Bakanji, um, Baka is the, is the indigenous name for the Darling River. They, so Bakanji means people of the river. Without the river, their culture almost doesn't exist. And it's been taken from them and is being taken from them in a very literal fashion um, on a day-by-day -day basis. Basin probably. Um, the southern basin is already, you know, plumbed just as much as your house is plumbed. I would suggest um, it's hard to imagine how there could be more plumbing. Um, but it's not only a metaphor; it's it's quite literally true. For example, in South Australia, um, some decades ago now, to try and combat salinity, they literally drilled into the landscape around the river in order to intercept underground flows of salt water 
and pump them out to lagoons, you know, well outside the irrigation area to try and stop the river becoming so salty. You know, literally is plumbing. Um, you know, almost quite crude. <laughs> um, so yes, the, the natural world is sort of out of reach. I mean, the Murray-Darling Basin is obviously a natural resource, but nature um, is in the past. It's it's really out of living memory now. And one of the things that gets contested along the course of the river is the statutory agencies like the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder, who are now trying to manage natural flows, are doing things which nobody remembers having been done before, you know, making making floods that people don't remember. And they said, well, that's not how it was when I was a child, which is their idea of the natural world. But of course, the Hume Dam and the Dartmouth Dam were built outside living memory now. And so what people remember from their childhood or even what their parents tell them happened during their childhood is not necessarily the natural state. So, yeah. And the 50s, which you obviously remember really clearly, was a particularly wet period. Um, we haven't had met so many of those since, and of course with climate change we're less likely to have them in the future. In terms of dams, um, yes, everybody always calls for a dam. A dam of course doesn't make it rain, but it can help you to manage rainfall. So if you can trap and store um, more water when it's wet, it might enable you to eke that out in a more even fashion through the dry years. But in the southern basin, at least, most of the good sites for dams are probably already taken. So you can increase the capacity of existing dams. But it's one of the sort of easy things that politicians tend to say, oh, we need more dams, or the shock jocks say it as well, why aren't we building more dams? You know, exactly where and how <laughs> it's less often addressed. A lot of the good sites for dams are taken. Um, it's not clear that just building more dams is going to solve our problems, but you can probably increase the capacity of some of the dams we've got. There is an argument that I've heard from a couple of people over the years that all irrigation systems in history have collapsed after a certain period. Not a very long period, actually, like a couple of hundred years, but as far as they go. And I've heard people say, well, you know, that's going to happen to our irrigation system because it happens to all irrigation systems. Is there any validity to that at all, do you think? It's certainly one of the possibilities. It's one of the reasons that so much effort and money and uh, political angst are being spent on this problem because it is possible that that might happen. Um, and there are numerous threats, as I've referred to earlier, back in the 80s and 90s, everybody was talking about salinity, and that is now very largely managed. Um, but yeah. uh, particularly with climate change and the idea that uh, there, will, there simply will be less water, we're looking mainly at a, a drier environment going forward, um, yes, it's possible the whole thing might collapse. I think Ross Garno estimated that something like 90% of irrigation in the Murray-Darling might collapse due to climate change. Um, and that's, you know, that's apocalyptic in terms of our agricultural industry. And it makes all these discussions completely academic. <laughs> largely. Be the case. Largely, yes. But can we just divide uh, the politics up just before that? At some point, you refer to the sort of the triple bottom line mm. of the Murray Darling, you know, the, the the social, the environmental, and the economic. Mm. Um, triple bottom lines have it's been long overdue. I think got a bad reputation since the Banking Royal Commission. I think 
is here too, that, that if, you, if you're trying to to allocate in a way for, even if everything were perfect, the metering were perfect, the transparency was perfect and so on, um, that, the, that, that they are basically irreconcilable, that you can't have enough water for the environment and enough water for irrigation. And if you don't have enough for either, then the whole social thing begins to split as well. Mm, yeah. Or, or is that really what the, what the whole plan is about, is just trying to make the best of a bad job? Um, well, unless you completely ended agriculture, let's just imagine it was possible to do for a second, if you could completely end irrigated agriculture in the Murray-Darling Basin, given climate change, given towns and needs of towns and cities, you're still probably not going to have enough water to take it back to what it was. And, you know, here we're imagining sort of demolishing dams, you know, basically clearing ourselves off the landscape. Um, you're still not going to get it back to what it was before Europeans arrived. Um, and given that we're not going to end all irrigated agriculture in the basin, I mean, there's just no conceivable scenario in which that would happen or even that we'd want it to happen, probably. Um, you're not going to have enough water to take it back to what it was and nobody pretends that that's the case. So what they're trying to do is to obviously stop the system from dying but also to preserve key sites, some of those internationally recognised wetlands, as a sort of measure of the health of the whole. Um, and it's, you know, it's a very compromised aim. It's uh, to try and keep the whole system operational for everybody and to try and balance the needs of towns and cities and agriculture against the needs of the environment, which are not really entirely opposed, because if the river dies, if, for example, if salinity gets out of control, um, then, uh, you know, then the agriculture dies too, ultimately. So while they often seem to be opposed, ultimately they're not. It's... It's all part of the same thing. So, yeah, the, the natural world, if we conceive that as being before European invasion, the natural world is out of reach. We lost that a long time ago. And I think a lot of people don't, a lot of people who don't live along the basin or understand water politics don't necessarily fully understand that. That's not actually not what we're trying to do. We're trying to mitigate the impacts of over-allocating the water rather than completely uh, get rid of them. So how does the politics play out? You read, you know, the, you know they, they talk about green and red tape and the environmentalists become um, a, a beaten up, or at least the environmental argument, the green argument is sort of beaten up. And, well, is it, is it often just a, a, a straw man, really, they're beating? Or are the green politics of the basin uh, a real problem? Are, are they, you know, even a significant part of the problem? Or are they... Um, mm. Yeah, um, I mean, in terms of, you know, if we're talking about the Greens, the political party, they have a presence in some of the local governments in the basin, particularly up around Mildura and Wentworth. There are quite influential Greens party councillors there. Um, but I'd have to say generally, if we're talking about sort of, you know, hardline environmentalists or even the Labour Party, um, that sort of politics tends to be a bit irrelevant out there. It might have well, a The Labour Party seems to be totally irrelevant in regional Australia, as far as I can see, and I've never known quite why. 
Yeah, pretty much. And, you know, it's sad, really, because the Labour Party had its origins in the Murray-Darling Basin, up round by Calden and so on, and in the shearing sheds, um, um, you know, back of Burke and so on. That was the beginning of the Labour Party, uh, the union politics there. But, yes, I mean, Labour hasn't been irrelevant to the big, you know, the sort of macro-political picture. Um, Penny Wong as Water Minister and Tony Burke in the Rudd-Gillard governments both played important roles. Um, but you know, no, nobody in these areas regards Labour. You know, when I said to many of them when I was doing the interviews, you know, what would Labour have to offer for you to consider voting for them? And there were things, there were things, but generally speaking, you don't get the impression that they see Labour, they don't regard Labour as being a solution to the problems, um, and they're not going to consider voting for Labour, or certainly not many great numbers. Uh, natural enemy. Mm, yes. Um, so, so the politics come down to um, really national party and counter national party um, folk, shooters and fishers and pretty much. one nation. Yeah, pretty much, with the Liberal Party around the edges there, particularly around areas like Aubrey Wodonga and so on. But yeah, basically it's National Party and others, um, including rural independents, but um, but increasingly the um, Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party, which is really interesting. I mean, I think a lot of people in the city don't really understand the appeal and assume it's all about literally shooting and fishing <laughs> but in fact in fact that party has been very sophisticated in its approach to water politics and has a very good understanding of water politics if you look at their policy website particularly in new south wales it's really all about water politics more than it is about the right to hunt shoot and fish where are they getting their advice from how do they get so sophisticated um, they have, um, as one of their advisors, a guy called John Clements, who was previously an advisor to Tony Windsor. Um, and he has a long background in water politics. Um, he has been on various agricultural bodies around the Namoi region um, and is, you know, highly respected in the irrigation industry. Um, so there's that, plus the fact that these guys really get around. I mean, the electorates we're talking about here are absolutely vast. Um, and Roy Butler, for example, who won um, one of these seats in the last New South Wales state election, it's just huge, you know, it stretches from uh, Menindee, you know, way to the east nearly I think it takes in parks or or nearly I'm not quite sure it takes in parks but it runs into that region and he was just constantly on the road he was always there he was at every community meeting and when I say community meetings you know I'm talking about a couple of dozen people in the pub because that's the population of the town but he was there all the time and he has been talking to landholders um, one example, there's a bit of a movement on, on the Darling to get rid of little rock, uh, to replace, sorry, um, sort of rock barriers which were removed for the paddle steamers, you know, decades and decades ago. Um, and some of the local landholders are saying, well, we should try and put some of them back for fish habitat and for the health of the river. And he's had legislation passed in the New South Wales Parliament to bring that around. So, you know, it's, it's the, the party is hostile to the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. They're calling for a royal commission into the way it's been implemented. But it's not from a sort of redneck, uninformed perspective. They're actually quite sophisticated and, uh, and understand water politics, I'd say, better than many people in Labour. 
so, so the expression can the plan, which sounds rather aggressive, is not necessarily unsophisticated. Yeah, well, it, it depends where you look. I mean, I'm not sure, yeah. as I say in the essay, I'm not quite sure what can the plan means because there isn't really an alternative on the table to doing the best you can with the plan. If you drop the plan, you know, it doesn't mean that suddenly everybody's got lots of water. It, you know, it's not the way it works. Um, but um, the, ca the Can the Plan campaign has been driven by the southern irrigators, led by um, a guy called Chris Brooks, who is a former CEO of Glencore, the mining and resources company. And he's semi-retired back to his family farm near Tokenwall uh, just before the plan came in. And then, as he put it, you know, has been dealing with people turning off the tap ever since. Of course, that was also uh, the beginning of drought as well. Um, and he has personally managed and sponsored some of these campaigns by um, Shooters, Fishers and Farmers candidates and has led the Can the Plan um, convoy to Canberra uh, late last year. Um, and increasingly the federal government and the New South Wales government are beginning to dance to his tune, which creates great tensions, of course, with the National Party networks further to the north, um, who are traditionally seen as the beneficiaries. And the last Water Minister, David Littleproud, um, was trying to deal with these issues. Um, as I say, you wouldn't start from here, but he was trying to manage the politics of that. And as far as we can tell, of course, it's been overtaken by the current virus crisis. But as far as we can tell, the new Water Minister, Keith Pitt, um, is taking a different approach. Hard to, hard to see yet what he's going to do. Yeah. So this, the National Party got absolutely smashed in the last election, in some electorates at least, as far as I can tell. But the, but the, the it's, it's now split on a sort of north-south basis. It seems to survive where Barnaby is, and and generally further north, but struggles further down, as if it's as if water is sort of as the water runs out, so does the nets. Yes, I think that's a fair statement. Although I'd have to say, in the northern basin, you know, I was expect that's that's Barnaby Joyce country. You know, he had his first. Um, yeah. accounting business in St George in the middle of cotton country I didn't find many Barnaby Joyce fans they're, they're not super keen on him um, so I think yeah so I think there there is a view that the way in which Barnaby managed the water portfolio has done them no favours um, they're aware that uh, there's many critical eyes turned north and uh, and yeah he doesn't have many fans there whereas Little Proud I think is, is better thought of but to quote Chris Brooks, he says, What made me mad is these cunning, thieving, manipulative so-and-sos buying water from the government's National Party mates up north. Mm. And then the floodplain hose, the Angus Taylors and the Barnaby Joyces and all their friends were gutsing on it. All of the National Party donors were in New South Wales and they were the ones getting the floodplain harvesting, getting the deals on selling their water and going back to the trough. Mm. Um, it's pretty savage stuff. It is savage, yeah. It's polemic, um, as I, you know, I mean, we, we probably need to explain what floodplain harvesting is as to why he's so angry about that, but that certainly is one of the huge issues in the Northern Basin. And also, one of the ways in which the Commonwealth, under both Labour and um, Conservative governments, although probably more under Labour, one of the ways the Commonwealth has tried to 
claw back water is simply by buying it, by going into the market and buying water. And Petty Wong started that as water minister. And Barnaby Joyce put a cap on that and um, caused a sort of change um, in approach. So instead of buying water, he was planning all sorts of fairly dubious efficiency schemes to try and get it back. But there have been some so-called strategic purchases which have been done with minimal transparency and of course one of them involves um, agriculture businesses that were previously, uh, which Angus Taylor uh, was previously involved with. So those have been controversial and because of the lack of transparency there's all sorts of allegations surrounding them. And then of course there's compliance issues. There is certainly in areas of the basin straight out water theft people pumping when they're not meant to be pumping or taking more than they're meant to take as i said earlier it's hard to know how widespread that is but uh, the independent commission against corruption in new south wales is investigating some of those relationships right now and then floodplain harvesting which is one of the great unknowns this is relating to the northern basin northern new south wales and queensland as I said earlier, these are sort of boom and bust rivers. They flood and then there's drought. That's just the, the nature of the country. But the irrigators build these enormous, they call them ring tank dams, which makes them sound small, but they're huge. Some of them cover more than a kilometre. It's flat land, so it's just a, a low earth bank. And when it floods and the flood water is flowing across the land, they store the water in these ring tank dams, huge things. Um, and of course that water therefore doesn't make its way into the rivers and this is the sense in which the darling has been stolen. Um, when I was travelling all those ring tank dams were dry, I didn't see water in them, but in earlier times a fair bit of the darling is probably in them. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And of course your home state, according to Chris Brooks and the Middle Murray, the middle Murray Darling people, uh, is not entirely innocent. They're saying that you're really the problem, South Australia, that you've falsified evidence about the lakes and the Murray flowing through to the sea, and as a result, the, the, the Murray-Darling poem was basically built on a lie. Mm. Mm. Which, uh, is, which I don't think is correct, but that's certainly the view, and it's got a real grip on, um, on the irrigation communities in the Southern Basin. They, they do believe that... Uh, that South Australia has basically lied, that the science doesn't stack up. Um, so to explain this, under the agreements that were struck at Federation and which have been sort of renewed at different times in history, South Australia, being at the end of the system, gets pretty much a guaranteed share of the water, 1,850 gigalitres. Now, it's not absolutely guaranteed, it can be less than that in real drought, but generally speaking, the rest of the basin concentrates on getting that water across the boundary into South Australia. And it's important not only for the irrigation business in South Australia, but also a fair bit of Adelaide's water supply and other country towns in, in South Australia depends on that. But it's also important to flush the system out. Um, a lot of the basin used to be a seabed in ancient history, um, the river flows through very salty soils and if you don't flush the salt out at the end through the mouth then it will gradually back up and kill everything. So it's pretty important that that 1850 gigalitres goes through but a huge amount is lost through evaporation in those enormous lakes at the end of the system that we talked about earlier. 
um, and the lakes are um, cut off from the sea by barrages that were built ages ago um, and which stop the seawater from sort of coming into the river and killing off the agriculture. So the claim from further upstream is that if those lakes were differently managed, if they were allowed to be returned to a saltwater environment, in other words, let the sea in, um, that a huge amount of water could be saved. And the claim is that recent research suggests that they were naturally salt water or more salt water than fresh. It's a pretty dubious claim, but you'll find scientific papers by um, Professor Peter Gell, who's the guy who's put out this research, circulated in towns like Daniloquin and Tokenwall and um, Wangaratta. You know, people will press his scientific papers into your hand and as evidence that uh, the whole Murray-Darling Basin plan and the whole of South Australia's allocation is built on a lie. Uh, it's not true. It's one piece of evidence among many. It's funny, though, isn't it? And, and in country towns, not to be um, impolite, but these ideas do take hold in yeah. rural communities. It doesn't take much. Mm. And I believe the IPA has even got involved. So Yes, yeah. yes. Well, they, they are quite keen on this research and quite keen on the idea that, you know, there's some sort of conspiracy at play. And there are conspiracy theories. I mean, you know, people are desperate. People who have been farmers their whole lives, whose parents and grandparents and great-grandparents were farmers, are facing the fact that they can't farm anymore in some cases. And that's for a whole combination of reasons and decisions over time. You know, that's, that's kind of an existential crisis for these people. And, I mean, I think it would be wrong to suggest that the majority of farmers are conspiracy theorists or whatever, but you're quite right. Desperate people believe desperate things. Yes, I was once told by several farmers that Australia was governed by a Fabian conspiracy. And, um, yes. I, I, I don't know that's still alive and well, but <clears throat> the Fabians would be thrilled. But <laughs> um, look, we're running out of time, but I wonder, uh, towards the end, you, 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 you run through a few people who have something resembling solutions and i just wonder what your position is on this i mean the, the suggestion by mike young who advised malcolm turnbull in the early stages of the plan that if you began with a fixed percentage of flows mm. a proportion of flows for those you know those instead of a, a number of gigaliters mm. that that might ease the passage of things a little is that yes so this guy was one of the architects of the Water Act and the Murray-Darling Basin uh, plan and the water trading system when Malcolm Turnbull was water minister. And he fought hard for this approach and, and basically lost. Lost because of the politics, I think it's fair to say. Um, so he was proposing, rather than trying to claw back a given number of gigalitres, and there's been a huge dispute about what that number should be, rather you should conceive it as a share um, so every, everybody gets a share the environment gets a share cities and towns get a share um, and also that everybody accepts there's a sort of base amount that you use just to run the river which is never touched no matter what um, and then you would decide on what the share was in any particular season in any particular region through some sort of fixed indicator and 
that would you know that might be rainfall or it might be flows at the mouth of the Murray you know something which nobody can manipulate can't be politically manipulated um, and that would mean that the whole system could adapt to change it could adapt to a dry year or a wet year and of course it could also conceivably adapt to climate change as though as we've said the the worst projections for that are pretty awful um, so he proposed that apparently he had you know some quite heated conversations with Malcolm Turnbull and in the end Turnbull said to him look you've got to stop we've got an opportunity to get this legislated now we have to take that opportunity and he said the guy says to me in the in the essay you know I think that was the right call politically you know uh, my system would have been better but not possible uh, politically to legislate at that stage but it is possible, I, I put this whole idea to Philip Glyde, the, the head of the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, and he basically agreed that it wouldn't have been possible then, apart from anything else, you have to have agreement from the states, and that's always difficult. But he did indicate that that might be the long-term future, that we might ultimately move to some scheme of that kind. It does seem to blend more you know, gracefully with, with the, you know, the, the, the unreliability of the system. Hmm. The fact that you have good years and bad, or several bad years and then a good one and then a flood, and yes. so on. But anyway, that, that's a simplistic view. Mm. The other view, apart from the one of closing down the New South Wales government completely or putting a few of them in jail, <laughs> um, um, which may not be a bad idea, just to sort of... And it may yet happen. <laughs> oh, well, that'll be interesting. Um, is Rex Patrick is a player in this, and, and he, he talks of a referendum to do what the Commonwealth founding fathers failed to do, and that is to give the Commonwealth um, responsibility for water and take it away from the states. Mm. Yes, so he's got a bill, you know, right now before Parliament, though he hasn't pushed it forward, um, but he, yes, he regards the founding fathers as having made a mistake when they gave ownership and power over water to the states. Um, and he wants to correct that mistake. Of course, that would take a referendum. We all know how difficult it is to get agreement on referenda. You have to have a majority of votes in the majority of states, and at the moment the states can't agree on anything much. So, um, you know, I think it's heroically, heroically ambitious. On the other hand, you know, in recent weeks we've seen the National Cabinet and a, a, a new spirit pervading through federalism and I mean this that this postdates me writing the essay but I must admit I've been watching that in recent weeks and thinking I wonder if that could persist in terms of management of the Murray Darling into the future. The other there's issue... There's possibly many other things one wonders but yeah. anyway. Mm. Yeah. The, he, Patrick would also ban the export of cotton I see. Well, he says he says that. I think that was a stunt, frankly, and and he virtually he virtually admits that in the essay. But yes, at one point, having toured the cotton growing regions of northern New South Wales and Queensland, he then proposed that we should ban exporting cotton, which, given that we export nearly all of it, basically means ending the industry. Interestingly, he didn't talk about banning almond growing. Uh, we also export most of our almonds, um, but of course almonds are grown in South Australia, which is electorate. So what he says he was trying to do was provoke a discussion about the extent to which governments should try and manage what crops are grown, which of course most farmers hate the idea of somebody telling them what they can grow. Um, they do, don't they? That's, that's, mm. the, um, that's the problem. I mean, if, if you drive up, I mean, by, by the way, uh, listeners should 
there are some wonderful descriptions of driving around that um, and sort of seeing the, seeing beneath the uh, the landscape too, both you know the geography and the the climate and the um, and the history of the place. Mm, thank you. But, I, mean, I, I remember driving up, you know, beyond Wentworth towards Broken Hill, and, and the people are still trying. You know, there are grapevines out there, and it's basically desert. Mm. And the, there are lots of places, it seems to me, where you would say normally don't farm. Mm. Would you, could you imagine a regime, Commonwealth or otherwise, in which it was possible to say to to say no, we'll put a, an environmental lease over this? Imagine if we had environmental leases. You said you're not going to farm this. It'll be good some seasons, but it's too. Mm. It, it's just not really farmland. Yeah. Well, that may have been possible once. It's probably politically impossible now. Um, but I do think there's a debate that's worth having about, you know, whether, you know, how do we best use water? At the moment, it's it's meant to be decided by the market. You know, water is tradable. If you own a licence for water, you can trade that licence or you can trade a particular allocation in a particular year. And the theory behind that, and this is the Hawke-Keating government really, um, the theory behind that was that water would sort of automatically find its best value use. Now, if you just let that system rip, leaving out all the imperfections of the market and where it meets the landscape and so on, you'd probably have a basin that was dominated by cotton and almonds at the moment. Those are the two most profitable crops. Is that what we want? Or does the current crisis uh, make us reflect on, you know, how cool it is that Australia can grow most of its own food and maybe we shouldn't be growing two crops largely for export? You know, these are debates worth having and... I mean, I think Senator Patrick's call to ban cotton farming was largely a stunt, but behind that, there's a, a legitimate debate worth having about agricultural policy. Yeah, I, I just wonder how much that, that sort of, you know, it's now fashionable to sort of knock neoliberalism in every account, but I do enjoy it. The, the, there, there is a sort of notion, the way you put it then reminded me that, you know, neoliberalism was sort of believed in in the same way that Archimedes lords would be mm. believed in, you know, that, that the water would rise to a level and, and be used in such a way that, you know, approach perfection. But surely the market is, is corruptible. I mean, that, that seems to have been ignored. And, and, and I guess that's the first point. I mean, how much is hoarding and ramping and that sort of thing going on mm. in the water market? And whether such a precious commodity should be left at the mercy of the market is another Yes, all, all very important questions. And at the moment, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission is investigating the water market. But, you know, leaving aside, you know, how much faith we want to place in, in markets, um, there's also just the, the physical reality of the river. Um, yeah. You know, it, water doesn't flow entirely freely. Um, there's one part of the river called the choke or the narrows, depending on whether you're a local or not where it's just physically not possible to get all the water downstream that you might want to get to meet a trade. Um, so, you know, the market is not perfect even before you get human beings distorting it and hoarding it and so on. Uh, it can't be perfect. It's, you know, it's because river systems aren't simple. <laughs> um, so, no. mm, so it's really a question of balance again. <laughs> Another one, a big water trader I heard say at Electric gave that... Um, um, that we don't actually know, we have no way of knowing, or there would be a way if we put our minds 
you can go and say, well, there there's this much water coming out of the river and there there's this much. Mm. We just, the, the, the technology hasn't been put in place. Well, it's very variable. Um, you know, in, in the southern basin, um, water is pretty meticulously metered and the meters are extremely high-tech, you know, they report back automatically to the authorities and so on over the internet. Um, but in Northern Basin, there's a lot of unmetered use. Most of it is unmetered use, and the meters they do have um, are pretty bodgy, and there's lots of allegations that they get fiddled with as well. Um, like the old car odometers, you wind them mileage, yeah. mileage back. That's right, yeah. So, And then there's also an issue of the so-called return flow. So uh, you might use a certain amount of water on your crop, how much of that water actually seeps through and returns to the river and we don't really know the answer to that question that's that with floodplain harvesting is one of the sort of great unknowns of this whole attempt to manage the basin at the end of it it, it rains when you're um, just as you're finishing the essay yes yes and did that leave you you know with the sense that it seems to me as always you know you'll hear farmers say even I remember the the Millennium Garden talking to farmers who would say, it's going to rain, mm. it's going to rain, it'll mm. rain eventually, when it just felt like it would never rain at all. And of course it did rain, and th this is the thing, the landscape is transformed so miraculously mm. uh, that one feels for the time being that everything will be all right again, and then we dip down into drought again. Yeah. Did you f uh, feel that sensation that really everything was okay now, and that... Um, this is this is actually the way life goes on in Australia. That that will and 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 the Phil Glide is right. That we just we just got to go along as we are and fix it as we go. As we mm. get better as we go. Well, I think the you know I mean there's just that human and emotional reaction. Rain is wonderful after drought. I mean it's it's hard to describe sitting here now in the inner suburbs just how wonderful rain is. <laughs> Um, it's the best smell in the world. Yes, exactly. And if we continue to get wet, you know, a wet season, more rain, um, it'll certainly take off some of the pressure. Um, like water, you know, there is now water at Menindi, for example, which was entirely dry when I was there. I mean, literally a dry riverbed. Um, but I think what the drought has done is shown up the underlying structural problems and difficulties and they're not going to go away some of the pressure might come off and and maybe if we're optimistic about it that'll give us a chance to address some of the issues but um but it's not going to completely disappear um well i'm a i'm naturally a fairly optimistic person sometimes in the face of all evidence as I say on this one, I sort of ricocheted around. It's a miracle that we're doing what we're doing at all. It's also the case that we don't know enough to really know whether what we're doing is working. Um, the politics are dismaying, particularly New South Wales, constantly threatening to pull out of the plan. Um, but then, as I say, you know, in recent weeks we have seen in the face of... Uh, of a more perhaps obvious and urgent crisis, we've seen our federal system actually 
kind of working. <laughs> um, and it would be lovely to think that that might carry forward into other areas once this immediate crisis is behind us. So, yeah, I, you know, I look for signs of optimism rather than pessimism, but it does take a conscious effort, Don. Yes, it's strange. It's the old law of unintended consequences. We draw hope from a pandemic in this instance. You know, it seems, yes. seems yeah. odd, but there you are. It's yeah. very Australian in its, in its, in its, in its way. You know, that just when you think all hope is gone, the flood comes down the river. Yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> we might have to end there, Margaret. We've gone for an hour at least. And um, are other things you want to add to this? No, tape? that's been I'm great, Don. That's been great, and thanks very much for doing it. It's been great to talk to you. Been a pleasure. Good luck with it. Thank it's you. Not the best time for selling books, but good luck. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Don. All the best. Bye. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and TV. You can also sign up to our e-news or to receive our free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production and music for this episode was provided by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty was never ceded.